reading is taken from Romans chapter 8, beginning at the 28th verse, and can be found on page 1135 of the Church Bibles. More than conquerors. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to Anne for reading to us. Thank you, Anne. Well, I don't know about you, I was rather looking forward to the film, actually. And uh, if you get bored, uh, the film's probably going to be going on, so do feel free to get up and walk about and, and leave if necessary. And I have to tell you, Howard, this time of year does not bring accounts to mind. It may bring accounts to your mind, but I don't think it brings to anybody else's. <laughs> this year uh, is the 100th anniversary of the now famous carol service at King's College, Cambridge, now televised uh, just before Christmas every year. The service was referred to by the Queen in her speech this year. I don't know whether you listened to the Queen's speech. Uh, Her address was, I thought, as always, wonderfully simple and profound, and perhaps surprisingly was apparently the most watched program on television on Christmas Day, which is pretty impressive. I suspect that, like me, many of you will have listened or watched this year's King's College service. 
It portrays the Christmas story through gentle carols, beautifully sung in harmony by boys with angelic faces and voices to match. A perfect choir singing out the familiar Christmas tunes in soft candlelight with extracts of the story of a young girl, angels and shepherds, and a young baby lying sweetly sleeping in a manger, all read by men and women in pristine clerical robes, smart suits or fashionable dresses. It's genuinely a beautiful service, and for many, it does help shape the meaning of Christmas. But not everybody agrees with that. Tim Montgomery, who occasionally writes for The Times, said a couple of years ago that church leaders have a responsibility to avoid the simplistic interpretation of Christianity that reduces the Bible to a sentimental fraction of its 31,173 verses. And a good start, he argues, would be to abandon the sanitized Christmas that gets served up at this time of year. It's a bit harsh, perhaps, but beautifully though the story of the Nativity is, the stark reality is that this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was actually born into a world of violence and injustice, a world of corruption and the abuse of power, a world contaminated by fear and deceit. Of the four Gospels in the New Testament, only two spend any time at all on the nativity and childhood of Jesus. Mark makes no mention of it, and neither does John. Luke, a doctor by profession, has two very full chapters, 132 verses in all, at the, at the very beginning of his Gospel, conducting what he calls a careful investigation of everything that happened from the very beginning, in order that we may know the certainty of the things that we have been taught. And in doing so, he shines a light into the lives of some very ordinary people. People who, like us, live in difficult, if not frightening times, and a world in which they often are confused and afraid by what is happening to them. And then, in Matthew, who, having covered the Christ, the Christ birth in just six verse, sorry, just eight verses, goes on to detail the vast uh, visit of the wise men, the escape into Egypt, and the return to Nazareth. And in doing so, he opens up a world where men, women, and children suffer at the hands of tyrants and puppet kings, like the self-centered and insecure thug called Herod. The contemporary Jewish writer Josephus records a grim picture of the physical and mental degeneration of this aging king at the time of the birth of Christ. Deluded and vicious, he murders every boy aged two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem in order to protect his throne. Such brutality, of course, still thrives today in a world of secular, religious, ethnic and cultural bigotry. And it can leave us with a pile of questions and sometimes very few easy answers. Like, why do we do this to each other? And where the heck is God in all of this? Over the years, I've come to realize that at the heart of most, if not all, conflicts in the world lies fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the other. Fear of death. And that fear goes back a long way. We're told in the book of Genesis that when Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid amongst the trees in the garden. And when the Lord called to Adam and asked, where are you? Adam answered that he'd heard God in the garden and he was afraid 
because he was naked, so he hid. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid. At the heart of this story is Adam and Eve's desire to be their own gods, hence the eating of the forbidden fruit. And they and every generation since have lived lives dominated by the consequences of that sin. Naked spiritually as well as physically, the result of that nakedness was fear. A fear that led to isolation and brokenness. A fear that plagues us still today. I wonder what fears are looming large in your life as we move into 2019. Maybe fears of failure or rejection, of unemployment or family breakdown, or fears associated with money or illness or forthcoming death, none of which, of course, is easy to live with. An old Jewish text says, start worrying, details to follow. And the media, of course, delights in providing details, depressingly fearful headlines and stories of individuals and organizations living in fear. In politics, as in the fears associated with Brexit, or in economics, The Sunday Times had an article recently arguing that alongside greed, fear drives stock markets up and down as much as economic facts because the participants are human and subject to herd mentality. And yet this banner, which I put up this morning, one that was made about a year or so ago by Christine and the team, quotes John's first letter, chapter 4, verse 18, and boldly declares that perfect love can drive out fear. For those of us that can accept it, with this love comes nothing less than forgiveness, salvation, and redemption. It's a love that restores us to our Creator God. It recaptures what Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden all those years ago. It leads us to one of the most well-known passages in Scripture, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In which case the ultimate fear, the fear of death, is banished. This perfect love transforms our fear into hope and a peace that isn't about an absence of war or a pain or crisis-free life. Jesus said many things about peace, but not once did he associate it with the world as a whole, but rather with an individual and inner spiritual peace. In John's Gospel, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Let not your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. The bottom line is that in a world of scandalous nationalism, hatred, terrorism, radical Islamism, materialism, consumerism, and every other ism, only the central manifesto of the Christian faith makes any sense at all. It declares that God is love and that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to take away the pain, that only through God's grace and the birth and death of his Son, Jesus Christ, can we find true peace and hope, find true purpose in life in a turbulent world. 
Only through him can we overcome our fear and find the strength to come out of hiding. What then is this perfect love that John is talking about? What does it look like? I think there are three aspects. I think perfect love involves self-giving without limit. A person who loves another holds nothing back. They will do anything and sacrifice everything for the one that they love. And perfect love is precarious. When we love another, we love them for their sake, not for ours. Such love is incompatible with an attempt to control or dominate the one we love. Love is therefore always potentially tragic because we can never be certain of our loved one's response and all too often that response may be a rejection of our love. So a third mark of perfect love is therefore vulnerability. When we love someone, we grant them power over us. We cannot love and then remain detached or self-sufficient. As self-giving, this love is thus a form of surrender. It is not us, but the one we love who determines the success of the venture. Self-giving without limit, sacrificing everything, handing over control and surrendering ourselves to the will of another. In human terms, this all sounds pretty improbable, maybe impossible. But it is surely the glue that holds together the whole Christmas story. Indeed, the whole story of Christ. The message of the Gospels is that we have a creator God who does indeed give himself to the point of exhaustion and death because love sets no limits. A God who does not control what he has created because love imposes no constraints and is infinitely vulnerable, as vulnerable as a newborn baby. A perfect love that came down at Christmas, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, in order to sacrifice itself for us on the cross of Calvary. For so many out there, and maybe some in here, God is all too often seen as some form of tyrant who demands our obedience and can barely wait to catch us out. But the reality is that he is an infinitely tender lover who hopes that his love for us will be both recognized and reflected back to him. Not for his sake, but for ours. His love can always be rejected, and of course it often is. But for those with a yearning to know that life is more than just existing, just surviving in a brutal, confusing and fearful world before death overtakes us, the golden thread running through the Gospels is that Christ laid down his life in order to establish the kingdom of love. And his birth, his crucifixion and his resurrection are but breathtaking glimpses into the heart of a creator God, signifying just how far he is willing to go for us. Jesus Christ was born into this world. He didn't come from it. He didn't emerge out of human history. He came into history from the outside. He's not the best human being that humanity can boast of. The human race takes no credit at all from Jesus Christ. He's not a man who became God, but he is God 
incarnate, God coming into human flesh from outside humanity. His life is the highest and the holiest that ever was and ever will be. And he entered through the most humble of doors, a virgin peasant girl. The the word scandal comes from the Greek word scandalon, which means a stumbling block, which is why Paul, in his letter to the church in Corinth, says that the resurrection of Jesus is a scandalon, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Another scandalon is the whole idea of an infinite God, a God so far beyond our finite and limited understanding, taking flesh and living on earth within a human body. And even more of a scandalon is the idea that this infinite or powerful creator God should reside in a baby born of a young virgin peasant girl in a dirty stable. Such an idea is certainly a stumbling block to many both inside and outside the church. And our reaction to it can be to retreat into so-called logic, to put the whole story into a human or a scientific frame of reference. But as Jonathan Sachs so eloquently puts it, what science takes things apart to see how they work, but religion puts them back together again to see what they mean. One of the great biblical truths is that like hope and love, This is essentially a spiritual, mysterious, supernatural business, way beyond logic. God is not bound by our limited understanding, as everyone involved in the Christmas and Easter stories discovers sooner or later. Elizabeth and Zachariah, Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, Herod, the wise men, are all brought face to face with that reality. And so are we. The full verse on the banner... Verse 18 from 1 John chapter 4 says that there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. It therefore challenges us to recognize that if we remain fearful in life and fearful of death, then we have not accepted the reality of that perfect love that will carry us into eternity. So, how do we find this love? Just as our Lord came into human history from outside, he must also come into us from outside. We cannot find this peace and love unless we are born again from above by a birth totally unlike physical birth. You must be born again is not a command, it's just a fact based on the authority of God. And the evidence of this new birth is that we are then prepared to yield ourselves so completely to God that Christ is formed in us. As he faced death in Rome, Paul declared in that letter that Anne read to us a little earlier, nothing can separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul knew the reality 
of that perfect love. And my prayer is that deep down, like Paul, we too know that we are loved. Not by a gentle baby, Jesus, meek and mild, but by an awesome creator God and by his son, Jesus Christ, who handed over control and surrendered himself to the will of his father, sacrificing everything for us. We are loved by God and by his son, Jesus Christ, who thought that you and I were worth dying for. So that we might find hope and love and true peace. A peace that passes all understanding. A peace that can drive out all fear. A perfect love indeed. When I was putting this together, I was reminded of a meditation by Frank Topping. Many of you will know that I use Frank a lot. And he's a great sailor. He loves sailing. And he writes some great meditations about sailing. And I just thought I'd finish with this. It's called A Light in the Dark. The breeze died to a whisper. Sails flapped listless and the wind was gone. Not a ripple remained on the surface of the sea. The little ship drifted on a smooth, gently rolling surface with her mast mirrored in the water, an undulating reflection. All around was silken serenity like an inland lake, yet the shores of this vast pool lay beyond our vision. Even from the cross trees of the mast, nothing could be seen. We took in the sails and before the drift of the sea took us far off course, started the engine and put, put, puttered our way towards the horizon. As darkness came, we stared ahead, hoping to see a conical buoy, a marina's signpost. But with the darkness came the wind. And hoisting sail, we shut down the engine and heard again the chuckle of the sea against the hull, saw the phosphorescent gleam of water broken by our bow. Until then, we had felt alone, but now far off, we could see the winking lights of fellow travellers, green and red and masthead white. The wind backed and raced down on us. Holding the squall in her sails, the ship leaned on her shoulder and plunged into the waves, throwing foam white water over the foredeck as we pitched into the night. For hour after hour we struggled, with sails and wind and sea. And somehow we missed the flashing light that would have fixed our place in this wild night. We feared that we were lost, had made an error in our reckoning, and behind a facade of firm-faced confidence... We prayed and worked until we saw the light. Not the one we were expecting, but another greater light that marked the land and haven and rest. And there always is a light. As we plot our ways through weeks and years, through the storms of our calling, through our fears, our failures, our disappointments, even in the dark nights of suffering, even in the face of death, we pray and there is light, a greater light than we expected, guiding us to havens and to rest. And may that be so for all of us in 2019. Amen.